Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. No! Oh my God! How could he do that? Are you on? Charles Darwin. The nerves is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brever, and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today, a special guest will be joining us. It's Aaron Schroeder. You can see him on TikTok at Possible Shares. And we got a lot to get through today. So we're bringing Aaron on because of the top 10 NBA players of all time list that I did recently. He took a different stance, specifically on the Bill Russell-Wilt Chamberlain debate, stitched that, and then some of the people asked for us to do a pod. So we thought, what a great idea. So we're going to be doing lots of historical NBA stuff. We'll get into that debate later on. But first, we got to start with the news of the day, which is that the Brooklyn Nets have fired Steve Nash after a 2-5 and five start to this season, obviously in year three of that whole arrangement. And they are strongly reported to be bringing in Ime Udoka as uh, the next guy in Brooklyn. So, Aaron, I'll open it up to you first. What are your thoughts on both the Nash firing and then also the direction that it looks like Brooklyn's going to take this? I think everyone's happy. I don't think the Nets players are particularly fond of Nash, but even more so, you got to be happy if you're Nash to get to get permission to be fired, essentially, out of this disaster. He's almost getting out of the car before it crashes. The Simmons thing doesn't seem to be clicking. Kyrie Irving's an insane person. Kevin Durant is moody as ever, and I'm sure he's just sitting on the couch right now, just kind of enjoying his day for the first time in a while. Yeah. I mean, I think that pretty clearly we've reached an ugly end point here, and yes, it's early in the season, but this is an organization that is pretty much in chaos, and if I think most parties involved had had their way would have just completely gone their separate ways in the off season. And it just did not play out that way. The offers that the nets were looking for weren't on the table, but I mean, there are some very obvious glaring issues with this team. Like on the defensive end of the ball, they have been completely abysmal. And that to me is really an issue of player commitment more than anything. Like people talk about the role a coach has, and of course that's there, but like the Nets defensive personnel is the best it's ever been with Royce O'Neal, although in Simmons, although Simmons has not looked like his, his normal self defensively, but still 
generally an upgrade on the perimeter of what they've been working with. And yet uh, they're tanking defensively. The interior defense is quite poor. The rebounding is quite poor. And again, that's about individual effort. Like these guys are veterans. They don't need to be taught defensive principles. Like they know how to dial in when they want to. In fact, we saw in the Nets first playoff run with inferior personnel still under Steve Nash, they played pretty damn good defense. They were fourth in defensive rating in that first playoff run because they committed themselves to it. And uh, I don't think that you can look at that, therefore, and say, oh, it's really a coaching issue, but it can't hurt to get a new voice in the room. Uh, if it is Udoka, obviously, that is a wild decision because if you are looking to avoid controversy and drama, I don't know why you would bring in the guy who was just suspended uh, for a year by his own organization, as good of a basketball coach as he may be for inappropriate advances with his coworkers. Like that is a shocking decision from that perspective. Just given the context of you would think they would be the organization trying to avoid that at all costs. So I think bringing in a new voice, I think bringing in a better defensive coach, all these things could help marginally at the end of the day, this roster is too far away. Uh, I think that they have issues uh, in terms of both roster composition and uh, really uh, personalities and commitment and identity that I don't think are solvable in a way that would lead to them contending. So yeah, good for them that Steve Nash is gone, I guess. Uh, I totally agree with your point, Aaron. I'm sure that he is relieved, but I still don't see this team going anywhere overly significant, you know, unless Ime Udoka finds a way to get Ben Simmons to regain his athleticism and be considerably more aggressive and, you know, refined his peak defensive level. And that just seems ambitious to put on any one man. I just think in the modern NBA, man, I think that uh, this falls on, I think the net struggles all fall on the shoulders of Kyrie and KD. And I don't mean like the defensive issues, like on the court. I mean, just the drama, man, you need your top two guys. Every locker room has two guys who are allowed to basically do whatever they want, right? Like on the court, they're the leaders. And I don't know, man, I think, I just think Kyrie and KD are just cancers, man. I, I think that, I don't know, they did this shit with Kenny Atkinson. It always felt like the writing was on the wall, that they didn't want Steve Nash, that they wanted somebody else. And it just seems like, I am. I agree with Aaron's point completely. I'm glad he said that. I'm glad that Steve Nash is out of here. I don't know who would want to be here. Like the, it, it seems like a really toxic environment. And I don't know. I think you're right. I think Aaron kind of hit it on the head, bro. I think this is a car waiting to crash, bro. Like, I think that that's eventually where we're heading with all of this. And I'm glad Nash is getting, I'm glad he opened his door and took off his seatbelt and hopped out. Um, I don't think that, I think it's honestly worse that they brought a new dope guy. I think they got a better coach. I think they got a better guy, but I think there is more fire here. There's more smoke. There's more drama. And I think if the Nets were smart, that they would just be looking to lessen that, man. I think this is going to be a chaotic drama filled season. And I'd be surprised if the Nets, got into the playoffs and won a playoff series, bro. I think this is going to be a, a disastrous year for, for Brooklyn. I like that you mentioned Simmons athleticism because that's seemingly the, been the issue with him. Mm -hmm. You take an already tentative player, already really passive player. You put that guy through back surgery. Yeah. That guy takes contact differently. He drives to the basket differently. And for someone who's already passing up those looks like we saw in the playoffs, you're getting an even more passive version of that. Yeah. Well, and especially too defensively with a guy like him, I mean, getting low is kind of the entire point, bro. Like getting to the rack, it changes. I think that's the worst injury that Ben could have suffered. And it really is affecting him, bro. 100%. I, uh, 
Yeah. I mean, he looks like a different player and I actually did an entire video on this, uh, breaking down everything kind of going wrong with him right now for our TikTok, And I think it's sort of a, uh, multi-pronged thing athletically he is not the same his athleticism is fundamental to his effectiveness as a player offensively it's the only thing that makes him an even competent score because it's hey in transition we have this 610 guy who can run like a deer and get downhill it amplifies his playmaking and defensively it's obviously fundamental right it's really hard to be a very good defensive player if you're not a good athlete and ben simmons has traditionally been quite a good athlete and has been you know last time we saw him maybe the best perimeter defender on the planet there's clearly a confidence thing. He's not finishing like even at normal Ben Simmons level. He's shooting 44% from the field and is just having some really embarrassing lapses there. And then I think obviously he's still getting accustomed to stuff like the screening. He's setting tons of legal screens. He's fouling recklessly defensively. Like I do think he just needs to get back into the game and he's in a new role. Like we're seeing him utilized much more in the Draymond role that people always talked about where it's short role decision-making where it's okay. Let me facilitate this DHO. Let me just quickly get involved in this action because I'm trusted to make the right pass to the guy who the play is designed for. Right? So it's a different role. He's not expected to shoot or score as much regardless, but yeah, there are also clear flaws in his game. Uh, this is not the Ben Simmons that we saw a couple years ago, an already much maligned Ben Simmons for being too passive. And obviously for his limitations as a score and all these things. This guy we're seeing right now is a shell of that player. And when he is a shell of that player, I don't know how the Nets win a playoff series because he was supposed to be, you know, their defensive foundation, the guy who could maybe help guide them towards competence on that end. No, they're the worst defense in the league because he's not holding his own on that end. And then offensively, he was supposed to be this really important cog, which, you know, he still helps things flow, but he needs to be able to keep defenses honest. He needs to be able to get his 12 a game. He needs to be able to occasionally attack mismatches and, you know, take the shots that are obviously presented to him. So there's just too much wrong with this team and, and a coaching change doesn't fix nearly enough. I mean, I think you need an entire culture thing if you're Brooklyn, bro. Like, I mean, not to beat a dead horse. I just think that they're doomed until you get rid of Kyrie KD and restart, bro. I don't see a happy ending for this tandem in Brooklyn. I don't see it. No, I don't see in the next, I don't know, bro. I don't I see how this ever gets fixed. We'll see what happens when Udoka comes in. Um, I think Brooklyn's just destined to fail, bro. I think there's too much drama. There's too, there's too much divisiveness here, bro. I think they're screwed until they get these cancers out of the locker room, bro. Even more worrying for Brooklyn, in, in, in a sense, it's good for them, but also bad for them. Kyrie and KD have been incredible in the exactly. first seven games. They're like 30 points per game on nuts efficiency, and they're still losing. That's Both those numbers are coming down. Those guys are not averaging 60 points per game combined for the rest of the season on the efficiency they've had it. Things are going to get worse before they get better. It's a great point about the KD and Kyrie production. Listen, I think they could put up close to 60 a game on pretty elite efficiency. Like those are who these guys are. But right now it's, you know, 63 a game. KD is 65% true shooting, which, you know, isn't actually far off from what I think he'll be. He was 62.6 last year. He's a basketball god. But you can't ask them to play better. Maybe you could ask them to shoot marginally better from beyond the arc. Like that would be the only criticism of their games offensively. And yet as a team, the nets have been average offensively. I do think that'll get better, but I don't see the defense improving significantly. Like, yes, it's the literal worst in basketball. It, it looks like a bottom quartile defense at the very least. And they're not good enough offensively to be a legitimately good team when they're that bad defensively. So 
with that, I mean, if you guys are ready, I'm ready to talk a little, a little uh, basketball history, some top 10 players of all time. So let's start with the Wilt Russell debate because I had Wilt seven and Bill Russell eight in my top 10 players of all time. Aaron, you have Bill Russell four. Is that correct? That's correct. Number four. And where do you have Wilt? I believe number 11. I'm still revamping okay. occasionally. In the middle of a revamp, I think the last edition I had him at, I think 10, actually. Okay. So regardless, a significant gap and in the opposite direction. So why don't you sort of lay out your fundamental belief and case as to why you would have Russell significantly higher than Wilt? I've been doing this for a while now. This is essentially the very first series that I I did on TikTok about a year ago, very first thing I had posted. And Bill was number four then, and I've since spent 50% of my waking hours doing Bill research to fight TikTok comments, which is always fun. Um, it's a, it's the, You go back to the 11 rings, and I'm not just looking at like, I'm not just counting rings, but the ability to win like that. I think when the average NBA fan sees that, sees 11 championships, sees the other finals appearances, they assume that something is wrong, that there's some outside presence affecting this because that's just such an unorthodox amount of winning we never really see replicated. But eventually you just realize that the Russell and really all those Celtics are, are that good. That's what it takes to win 11 titles is one of the five best players ever is an amazing supporting cast, which he absolutely had. And that's, that's kind of what it comes down to. You look at it and I, the first thing you try to do is, well, how do you discredit this? How does, how is this possible? And, and you know, maybe we'll actually better, but eventually you just come back around. You're like, no, that's what it takes to win 11 titles. Actually. I think he's actually really good. So here's kind of where I come down on it. The most important thing at the end of the day is winning impact, right? And how you drive that. And obviously people will look at the outcome and say, well, Bill Russell won uh, a whole lot more, right? I mean, he has 11 rings to Wilts too. Uh, his career winning percentage, although Wilts is quite good. I think his team's averaged like a 53 win pace uh, over his career when he was on the floor. You know, Russell, again, it's 11 rings in 13 years. It's unprecedented. My take on it is kind of this, and it's a complicated one, but I think that Wilt always had the tools to do, uh, quote unquote, the Bill Russell role at a much higher level, right? He did it, and he did it later on. And he did it, exactly. If you start with the 66-67 season and then pretty much go through the rest of his career, but particularly that season, he's a better playmaker. He is a lead scorer who is demanding massive amounts of defensive attention. Uh, he's scoring on like 20% better efficiency than Bill Russell and is an elite defensive player and a game changer on that end. So that ability to command the game in all its phases is what peak Wilt looks like, right? To me, it's not Wilt who's scoring 50 points per game and averaging three assists per game and is on teams that are, you know, pretty good, but not in true contention. And I think that generally when people make the Wilt argument, they look at pure statistical feats. I don't consider that to be his absolute peak, um, especially when you consider factors like, you know, he's playing 48 minutes, which yes, is impressive, but also more possessions. The rate of, you know, the pace of play overall was just ridiculous. If you look at the early 60s, so like, all those things need context. But I also think that 
the basic argument I made at the end of my video was that Wilt can simply excel, I think, in more situations. Like, I do think Russell needs a foundation around him, players who can compensate for his weaknesses. And I do think that ceiling raising is ultimately much more important than floor raising. But I also think, I mean, you look at what Wilt can do as a floor raiser for an offense, scoring 50 a game. Like, yeah, obviously. The reality is that he would be better off scoring 15 less points per game and facilitating more, even if his personnel is an outstanding. But the fact that he could do that is pretty remarkable. Whereas, you know, how are you even going to convince me that Bill Russell could have scored 25 points per game in a season? I don't think he could, certainly not efficiently. Um, obviously, he brings the playmaking aspect, but still peak Wilt is a better and more effective playmaker. So Russell is the greatest defensive player we've ever seen, I think, by a significant margin. Uh, the Celtics have the best defense in the league every year, but one and the ability to take away the rim, especially in the pre three point line era is an incredibly valuable thing. And if you look at a lot of those Celtics teams, they won without even being particularly efficient offenses. Like I, I think that in terms of league ranking and offensive rating, the Celtics, the year before Russell got there were higher than the Celtics in like every year of Russell's career. Like they are consistently a bottom half offense, but they were so great defensively that it didn't even matter. And that's because of him. So a guy who has such overwhelming impact on one side of the ball is tough to judge. I just think Wilt could have, you know, still certainly all defense level impact if that were to have been a thing during their playing career, uh, completely take away the rim and then also be your offensive centerpiece, your true lead offensive guy and carry either weak talent to being respectable by just taking this overwhelming offensive load or carry good talent to being all time because he's such a menacing scorer and can be such a great playmaker with such great efficiency. I just think he was a better basketball player is what it comes down to. I think there were more ways in which he could dominate. And if you put them both in their ideal situation, Wilt can do not everything better because Russell is a better defensive player, but his overall impact is certainly greater in the ideal situation. And if you put them both in nightmare situations, Wilt can do more to elevate that bad team to being respectable because of his offensive lead scoring ability. How did you guys, when debating this, how did you guys judge like head-to-head -head contests between Wilt and Bill? I don't think we talked about it. I don't think we went there. Um, I mean, yeah, like, I did, that, did that factor in at all for you guys? It really never does. Um, Wilt's numbers are staggering, and they always are. But playing within a team always had been more valuable. So if Wilt's able to average 30 points per game, well, maybe he was averaging 45 points per game before that. If his numbers dropped down by 15 points per game, would Wilt be able to get his teammates involved to a point where they could make up for that? And really the answer was no for a good half of his career. So you're saying that you're not holding the increased like scoring volume against Wilt in those early years. I, I don't hold it against him because it's, it's awesome. It's a cool thing mm -hmm. to do, but the effectiveness of it, it's clearly not right. 50 points per game and they're winning a ton. And even when he's averaging, I, I had mentioned in the stitch of your video, mm -hmm. he's averaging 45 points per game that season. There's an 11 game stretch where he basically puts up those numbers. They lose every single time. Mm -hmm. And it's not just to the Celtics and it's not just to 
the good teams at the time, they literally lose to everyone in the league. They lose mm-hmm. to the Zephyrs, like the Chicago Zephyrs who become the Wizards and then the Bullets and the like this whole, it all the way back to the Zephyrs. Um, the numbers are always there. The Warriors at the time, they had success before him in 57. They had won the title with uh, Arizon and Neil Johnston and, and Tom Gola. And, and Arizon and Gola are still there when Wilt gets there, but clearly he, the success is there. It's a different league and it had grown a bit, but even by 65, Wilt's numbers are insane. He's yeah. I mean, it's, he's leading league in scoring. It's 35 points per game and 22 boards. That team sucked. That team is the worst team in the league. They, when they trade him, they had won 11 games so far. And even when he gets to Philadelphia that season in 65, they were 500 before him. And at the trade deadline, to the end of the season, they're 500 after with their 500 with him until he changes the role into what Bill Russell had figured out long before that's when the winning starts. And so, even after he leaves the Warriors, that same team, literally the same five guys, just with Rick Barry or rookie Rick Barry, they're much better the year after that, win 35 games and a very similar team the year after that. They go to the finals to face Wilt in the finals with his new team. It, it, it's so strange, but almost undeniably, 1966, Rick Barry is more effective with those same guys than Wilt was. Even the numbers are, are what Wilt's still doing. So I do want to provide some more context to that because I do think the Warriors team that won the title in 56 is looking pretty different than the Warriors team that Wilt ends up coming into. Like they were a 32 win team and he improved them by 17 wins, which is significantly more than, you know, the amount that uh, Russell improved the Celtics by when he came in and the Celtics had been, you know, a staple in the playoffs since Red Arbach got there and had been consistently a very good team. Now, Russell is the guy who took them, you know, up another level and uh, did so by being the best defensive player ever and transforming a relatively weak defense into the best defense in the league. It's a difficult thing to sort of assess in totality because it's like, yeah, Wilt could have played better basketball in terms of winning early in his career. I do not deny that. Even though he's scoring these massive numbers at really good efficiency, like was almost always you know, among the league leaders in true shooting percentage, Nevertheless, he could be doing more by amplifying his teammates by leaning more towards playmaking, and he could still be a monster scorer. He just doesn't need to literally score 50 points per game. I don't deny that. But I think that there is a tendency among some people to almost punish Will for not figuring out the optimal winning basketball when he was doing something that Russell never could have, if that makes sense. It's like Bill Russell never had the dilemma of, oh, do I try to go out and score 50 or, you know, do I score 35 and play make more or 25 and play make more? Because Bill Russell could never have done that. And if you put him on a 32 win team, you know, obviously he can change the defense, but I don't think that he's improving that offense necessarily by a ton. And yeah, you're right. I mean, there are stages in Wilt's career where his teams simply are not winning. But I would argue in most of those situations, you're looking at talent that is not going to win at a high level. And that's a fair example with the, with the Rick Barry situation. I also think though, like 
you might just be looking at Wilt's burnout there and, and needing to be in a different situation. And I'm not saying that that like excuses, you know, not playing the best winning basketball, but that's also one specific instance over 15 year career. So it, it is an interesting question because again, I mean, I think that we both agree on the fundamental point that what matters most is how you impact winning. And, uh, if you take the first half of Wilt's career versus the first half of Russell's career, uh, Russell did more winning. And uh, it's tough because you can't look at these things in a vacuum because they're in such drastically different basketball situations with such drastically different skill sets. And that's where I get hung up and lean on the guy who I think just had the more ability. It always hurts because you, I know I agree with you. Like Wilt did have more ability. I had made a video a while back saying essentially, and one of the points was that Wilt was almost too good at basketball. And that sounds mm. ridiculous. Like that sounds like a preposterous thing to say. He almost had poorly allocated his basketball abilities into the wrong things. Mm-hmm. He could have had the will, he could have had the bill role. He could have done that too. And just an insane, an insane level, but he kind of chose the wrong path. And by the time he is winning in 67, he's really, it's, it's Bill, and it's a little bit better with the scoring, but it's how Greer leading that team in scoring. Um, I, and I think, um, who's the other sixer? Chet Walker as yeah. well is ahead of uh, ahead yeah. of Wilton, and Wally Jones is kind of in there. And then Billy Cunningham is basically taking the same amount of shots as well in that finals. Yeah, Will was and fourth you, in that finals in points per game. Yeah, and I mean, he was, I think he's like 10 assists per game, but it's he's doing the build, he's doing the build stuff. When you get to the Lakers, it's West and it's even Goodrich. The 1972 Lakers is led in scoring by Gail Goodrich, and I don't think most people even realize that. And that's not a knock on Will, he's, but mm-hmm. there seems to be a blueprint in that era. Like, well, how do you win a title as a center? And it's what Bill had been doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with the point in terms of that was the more effective way to play the position. The thing is, Wilt was significantly better at it once he figured it out. Like, I just think, like, you can call it the, the Bill role, but the level of defensive attention he's demanding, you know, just because he's Wilt Chamberlain and everybody knows that he can go out there and he can you know, overpower you athletically and he can also kill you with the fadeaway and he can do all these things like the playmaking impact that allows him to have is just more significant. The efficiency with which he can score is just on a different level. So again, it's like, I don't agree. I don't disagree that Wilt was not playing the best possible brand of basketball for his abilities early on, but I still think the gap in ability and the fact that he eventually figured it out when he was in a, in my opinion, less favorable situation, significantly so than Russell early in their careers is enough to make up for that. Russell had it figured out immediately gap. I think the seven, eight spots were great for a pure top 10. I I wouldn't, I'm not going to kill you over that by, by any means. Um, But even when Wilt does figure it out, it, it is still kind of off and on kind of fleeting in the 1969 finals, game two, Wilt scores four points in 48 minutes. Mm-hmm. And the Lakers do win that game. He grabs the rebounds. He has some assists. That, that's always just that. I always like to bring up that game because it is kind of strange. It's even when he does figure it out, he almost flips it too far. Where it's like, is this guy being too passive now? 
Um, he's like this great basketball giant with the wrong allocation of his powers in a sense. But I think you have you have all the right ideas on on both these guys. Yeah, and, right and and like there's no denying that Wilt has more, you know, ugly moments. I mean, he also has the seventy. Uh, finals where he's not, you know, in the final moments of game seven. Like this is the kind of stuff that doesn't exist for uh, Bill Russell, who had, you know, pr pretty much a, a blemishless career in that way. Um, so for most of my life, I was on the Bill Russell side of the argument. Um, basically every other list that I've made for myself, I had Bill Russell higher. Um, but I think that there came a point where I was like, Russell, as transformative as he was defensively, had a limitation that no other top 10 player has had. And that was that he could not be the true focal point of an offense. He could not be a true lead scorer. And of course, he was a great positional passer. And of course, he was a fine scorer of the basketball. But when you're talking about the top 10 of all time, the reality is these guys' careers played out as they did, and they went into the given situations that they did. And, like, we do have to judge them in that context. And so maybe I do get too theoretical when I'm like, well, what if you put Wilt in this situation and he could do all these things better? And, like, you know, he could have maximized his skill set sooner maybe if he was in a more conducive situation. And all those things, you know, maybe are overcomplicating it. But I do think it does matter that Russell had a limitation that – um Really, nobody else in in the top ten had, and Wilt certainly didn't have. So, um, I feel like I've I've made my points. Logan, do you have anything else that that stands out to you, having kind of just been observing? <laughs> I kind of just feel like it's a double edged sword. I did just read uh, Carson the book that you clowned me for uh, because Elliot Call braided check the greatest player of all time. That's not, um, that's not why I clowned you. I clowned you because it said Wilt was better than Michael Jordan. Wilt was two. Michael Jordan was three. Very true story. Um, who who is one? Shaq. Oh, jeez. Wow. The book okay. was written. In, the book was written in two thousand and four. I will say. Okay. Um, yeah. Shaq. I, don't, I think it's a double edged sword the way you attack Wilt because, like, even in here though, I mean, they say the same thing. Uh, game seven of the nineteen sixty eight Eastern Conference Finals, Wilt shoots one time. Their uh, game seven closeout game, Wilt shoots one time in the second half against Bill Russell. He's playing the right way, right? He's getting doubled. They're sending doubles at him all game and he's passing out to his teammates who don't uh, pick it up. I don't know. I think it's a, I think it's a double-edged sword about how you attack, how Will played. I also want to ask you guys as being more experts on how these guys careers played out. Do you think Wilt figured out how to play winning basketball or did his athleticism and his physical feats kind of leave him to where he had to play a different brand of basketball? Um, he, he or a little of both. He figured it out. I mean, Alex Hannum, who was the head coach for that 66-67 season, pretty famously had a role in helping him figure it out and, mm -hmm. and adjust. But he's, know, also also the like, coach. he's also the coach for the Warriors years. He went with him. Right. But but I'm I'm I mean, I know that I've read at some point that that year there was a a shift, and I'm pretty sure that yeah. it was initiated by by Hannum. But it is obviously a never ending debate. Uh, we are still having it 50 plus years later. Um, so official, why is there, I do want to ask uh, too, uh, Aaron, there's a big discrepancy in, you know, Carson has Bill and Wilt right, uh, you know, right beside each other. Why is there such a discrepancy for you? Like why is Wilt uh, not even in your top 10? It, it does come down to 
the contributions to winning. Having so, so can you can ahead. you give me an example? Like, who are some of the guys that you have? Like, do you have Steph above him? Do you have Akeem? Do you have Kobe? Like, who are some of the guys that you have uh, right above him in the top ten? Right above him is Kobe, Shaq, and Duncan. Runs into that, into that in my latest uh, top seventy-five. And with those guys, you get a, just a, an absurd amount of of finals and and winning with those rings and the dominance in the big moments. I mean, could you argue that Kobe, I don't know, you look at, I would probably argue that I'd have Wilt above Kobe too, just because I feel like Kobe needed a lot of help and had to play a, not a very specific role, but Kobe needed Powell and he needed Bynum and he needed Meta on those final teams. Like, I, I don't know if the Kobe is one the, is the only one I think I, I would, uh, that I have reservations with. I would probably have Kobe That's outside fine. of my top 10 and I'd slip Wilt in. Um, I accept just like, it. Yeah, just like at their peak, but Man, it just surprised me that there's such a big difference, um, that there's seven guys separating Bill and Will, because I feel like every list I see, they're neck and neck. You know what I mean? It, it's, it usually is that way, and I'm sure when I first wrote this out, that's kind of how I had it, but the, the more you look into it, no matter what the situations were and who the teammates were, there's no way there is a nine-ring gap between the two of them, even if Wilt was playing with horrible teammates, which – is tends to be overblown. And if Russell has a thousand hall of famers on his team, which also tends to be overblown, um, it's not enough to justify that. Yeah. I also wanted to really quickly, before we get too far from it, you had mentioned Russell's weakness. Um, and people have always brought that up. Like Russell couldn't score a weakness matters when it affects them negative negatively. And the Celtics are never a good offensive team. The one year they have an above-average offense, they lose. It's 1967, and they're back down to the below-average offensive team. And so really, I mean, to win 11 titles in 13 years and then say, well, he couldn't score, it's I don't think he had to. I don't think you needed that. Um, you can find someone to score 15 points per game, but can you find someone to lead the best defense in the league every year? That's, that's the mm-hmm. special player. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's an importance in terms of the context of the era with that point, um, because I think that's a good point. And maybe part of it is we could never see a player transform a defense like Bill Russell did in today's NBA, right? Like that level. I mean, how many points per hour possessions better were they than like the second best defense in the league? I don't have it in front of me, but I think it's, we're talk- it's, it's pretty like several, right? Like yeah. so, and it's every single year. So maybe that is partly my modern NBA mind coming in there and thinking, you know, that's a limitation when you make a good point. I mean, the Celtics did not have to be a good offense to um, be, to be great. That being said, he did play with great, like legitimately great offensive players. Like, like John Havlicek is a top 20 player of all time. You know, Bob Cousy is one of the great playmakers of all time. Top 20. MVP really? is rookie year. John Havlicek. Well, really? I, I'd, I'd have to map it out. Where do you have him? I think about, I mean, it's close. It's, it's quite the leap, but I think right around like 28, 28. Okay. Yeah. Well maybe. Okay. Yeah. Certainly top 30. I, I do not have my top 75 mapped out. But, <laughs> you don't have that off um, the top. I don't have it off the top of my head. <laughs> maybe 20s ambitious, but I mean, it is like, you know, you're talking about two way players with, you know, just unbelievable scoring and playmaking ability and, and elite defense. And obviously all the winning that you could ever ask for very complete resume. I think the scoring limitation is 
valid to bring up. I agree with your point too. It's not like the Celtics had Bill Russell was able to play that role because he was able to, right? And he played it to perfection. And head-to-head matchups against Wilt, Bill Russell averaged 14-4-23 on 37% from the field, bro. Like, 37% mm-hmm. from the field, dude. Wilt still got his every time. Like, I think there is merit in that argument. I think there's merit in both arguments, right? Yeah. right? Like, I see it from both sides. But that's horrendous, dude. 14 points on 37% from the field, bro, and head-to-head matchups. I don't know. Like, do you hold that against him at all? Bill's teams are 57 and 37. Like they always had the upper hand because of the overwhelming talent on Boston's side um, and how Bill was able to play Wilt like nobody else uh, in the league at the time. But I mean, that's horrible. That's genuinely horrible, right? Like it's bad to an, it's bad to an extent. The field goal percentage was, was pretty low and Wilt is an imposing defensive player. Um, But if you keep winning, over and over at some point you have to be like maybe it's fine like he, he that he's shooting poorly i also wanted to mention that with like havlicek and sam jones um and they get tommy heinson in 57 mm-hmm. the same year russell comes over um and the other guy whose name i'm forgetting it'll come to me Bill the Sherman? power forward now the yeah Sharman and Ant uh, Cousy. power forward the other Zach sanders no they get him for the last two I was thinking of Bailey Howell. Was that yeah, him? Bailey. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he comes at the end. It's all so perfect. And in a sense, yeah, it was perfect. That's why the career was perfect. That's why the, the resume is perfect. And that's what it takes to win 11 championships in 13 years and go to the finals. Um, another time is just, it's, it's unprecedented. It's, it's, it will never see that amount of perfect draft picks and perfect timing for all these things. If let's say like Sam Jones doesn't exist or Havlicek goes somewhere else, Bill probably gets like four rings, maybe four or five. And that, that is the appropriate amount of rings to come down to. But it, but it wasn't like that. And he's able to, to have this team in a sense. So the teammates are there, but I think that's what it would take to win as much as you did. Do you guys both think that, um, do you guys both think that Bill is the greatest winner um, like in sports history period? I don't know enough about the other sports to answer that hundred percent, but at least in basketball. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that's a totally fair point, but if you're just looking at in terms of winning resume, like even separating, you know, winning impact, just, I mean, he won 11 championships in 13 years. Like, I don't know of anybody, you know, I mean, maybe some guys in the Yankees like, dynasties like, came kind of close yeah. to that, but no, I, I, Again, you know, basketball and, and football would be my areas of expertise, but he's certainly the greatest winner we've seen between those two. Yeah, no doubt. All right. All right. Well, we went for a while on that, but I think that was good. And I think, yeah. you know, I I think it is really interesting to consider how different basketball was. And I think, honestly, the, the most compelling point, I think, um, to me that you made, which I thought was a very good one, was, um, you know, the the Celtics winning in spite of their offensive limitations and Russell's offensive limitations. And I think that that does speak to the fact that they were that much better defensively than everyone else. And they were that much better defensively because of Bill Russell and basketball was different back then. And everybody, and it was congested and everybody was trying to, you know, score much more in the same area. And so a guy like Bill Russell, who's the greatest defensive player ever could simply take away more, could have a bigger impact. And, you know, obviously that's something that, you know, intuitively, but, um, 
the extent to which it is the case, I think, is is pretty remarkable. So, all right. What else uh, do we want to dive into from, you know, some of this historical stuff, top tens of all time? I, we're on the same side in the GOAT debate. At least we were last I saw from the list you made with MJ at one. Yeah. But I will say I agonized over it this time around. I think it's actually really, really close. And to me, there is not a wrong side in this debate at that point. So I'll open this up to both of you. Um what do you think are kind of the key factors there? Because we all end up on the same side, but what we what's mean key factors important? between what, like LeBron and MJ? Yeah. I mean, we did this debate with a friend of the show, Gabe Swartz, about what a year ago? It was over COVID. So maybe two, two years, years ago. ago. It was yeah, when the Lakers a... when the Lakers won their title. Yeah, we did right after LeBron uh got his Mickey Mouse ring. Um <laughs> <laughs> we had the debate on uh who is the GOAT. And I think that. Where we where I landed, at least uh, analytically looking into it, the thing that I held against LeBron the most was the 2011 finals against Dirk, where he averages 18 points. Uh, gets outplayed by Deshaun Stevenson, right? Uh, MJ never had a series that bad, right? He LeBron shit the bed in that series. Bosh didn't have a bad series. D-Wade didn't have a bad series. I also, that was the first NBA finals I ever remember watching, and I remember when they were making fun of Dirk, and that shook me to my core when D-Wade <laughs> and LeBron were making fun of him. I didn't like that. So I hold that against LeBron as a stain of his NBA resume. Jordan never had a finals that bad. Um, and Jordan, and the debate that everybody always goes back to with LeBron is the playmaking aspects, how much better LeBron makes all of his teammates. And I think it's valid, right? Is Carson, you talk about a floor raiser with Will, right? You're kind of having the similar debate, right? LeBron was on some very bad teams initially, made those teams better because he's a great playmaker. You know, obviously takes that 07 team to the finals, uh, I don't know, man. Fucking Booby Miles. Who was on that team? I don't know. Booby you know, Miles is a Friday Night Lights character. Booby Gibson. Booby Gibson. <laughs> Daniel Gibson. Yeah. Booby Miles was a Friday Night Lights character. They shouldn't have let that man back on the field. His knee was shot. Yeah, it's um, terrible. Career-ending decision. MJ Wright gets eliminated, puts up 35 pieces, scores his ass off on those shitty Chicago teams that get eliminated in the first round. That's a knock. Uh, but anyway, the floor raising versus the ceiling raising, right? LeBron, oh, he's such a great playmaker. MJ averaged 11 assists in a single finals. And I think if he wanted to be, could be a great playmaker, could be that engine. And that to me is the distinction. MJ never had a finals as bad as LeBron, never had that just where he gets not exposed, but he never had a performance that bad on the biggest stage in the NBA. And then on top of that, LeBron's greatest characteristic, that playmaking, that opening stuff up for other people. I think MJ just had it in him, but was such an innately great scoring talent. Again, a 11-time scoring champ in the playoffs, a 10-time scoring champ in the regular season. I don't think LeBron has that scoring bag. I think MJ does have that playmaking bag. And to me, that's the biggest distinction. I think it is neck and neck. I honestly do not care anymore if somebody says LeBron is their GOAT. I respect yeah. that opinion. I respect if you say Kareem. I think it is a very nuanced debate. I used to be on the edge of if you have LeBron as your number one, you're an idiot. I don't care anymore. I'm, I'm about appreciating greatness. These are three of the greatest players of all time. And, uh, and I respect you if you have LeBron at number one. He is going to break the record this year. Um, it's very nuanced. It's a tough debate. That is where I come down, though, because I think that those are my two biggest things. The finals in 2011 and the playmaking aspects that we did see from MJ in the finals that I think he could reach that level. So those are the two biggest distinctions for me. It's neck and neck. I have MJ one, LeBron two, and then Kareem three. I saw a TikTok today and someone said that uh, it was like another basketball podcast. And they said that Jamal Crawford is better than Michael Jordan. So I think we're doing okay. <laughs> I think that the quality of this one is, is uh, 
That's a pure bad. hooper. That's somebody who just looks yeah. for pure <laughs> basketball skill, ball handling, and Absolutely. shooting ability. With Jordan, I'm 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 the same way. Where I think it's it's if you're convinced 100 that it's one or the other, you're probably wrong. Um, but with with Jordan, it's just there. There's a good. It's, there's back to back three peats. Like, hey, by the way, if that guy plays basketball, that's the best team in the world. And you really don't get that with LeBron. Um, he'll take like an Eastern Conference team and beat a bunch of shitty teams on the way to the finals. Um, but the dominance, like this, the chokehold on basketball for how Michael Jordan had it, mm-hmm. really isn't there. Like what's like, I guess LeBron, it's like 2012 to, I guess I'll have to the 16 if you want to go that far. Like that's his best. That's his stretch right there. Maybe I maybe you saying to what 2018? I don't know. I'd extend that a little further. Yeah. Even. But yeah, I mean the, the east the east is is true. The, 20, <laughs> the 2018 Cavs are I haven't I haven't looked into it. I tried to, but I I have 17,000 half finished project uh, projects. Mm-hmm. Um, the 2018 Cavs were horrible. Like that wasn't a good team. That team never should have been there. Like anyone that there's like six teams that could have came out of the West and beaten those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'd probably cut that LeBron window down a little bit. But yeah, Michael Jordan really good at basketball. Scored sure a lot was. of points. Yeah, ten straight I, scoring titles. Sorry, just just throw that out there. Like that's that's absurd. Yeah, I, I like all the points that have been made. I mean, LeBron has a blemish that MJ does not. Um, I do think the chokehold is also an important point. I mean, it's sort of difficult to refute, right? Like, if you're looking at winning impact, of course, it's so much more complicated than let's compare rings, right? Like, I was just on the Wilt side, very narrowly, of course, of the Wilt Bill Russell debate. Just like I'm narrowly on the MJ side here, uh, but the rings are going in the opposite directions there. But there is something to once you gave him title caliber personnel, like once Scotty is an all-star caliber player, um, they win six of seven years. Like, I I don't think that we are at the point where we can just discount uh, 95. That happened. MJ was not himself in the regular season, but by the playoffs, he was pretty, pretty damn good. And that roster just was not as good, right? Like they didn't have Dennis Rodman yet. There were still improvements to be made that then turned them into the greatest team uh, of all time. So I like the chokehold point. Uh, I like Logan's point. I mean, I do think LeBron's playmaking uh, makes him a better floor raiser because of like, I think MJ is a very good playmaker. LeBron is still unequivocally a better playmaker and has such an ability bearing down on the paint, kicking out to shooters and plays in an era where shooting is also more prevalent. And so that amplifies his skill set too. That it's like, that's the guy who I would take to drag any team to 45 wins in NBA history, no doubt, to 50 wins too. And that's what he's done for so much of his career. There is a scalability with MJ scoring though, where it's like, I mean, that guy can kill you from anywhere on the floor. Uh, He can kill you in a variety of different systems. And he doesn't need to dominate the ball in the same way that LeBron does to be, you know, every bit as effective. And so there's a versatility there. They're both versatile basketball players that I would slightly give to MJ defensively, I think super close. I just think MJ was slightly more dedicated. Like LeBron has just had down seasons defensively seasons where he's just not totally committed at their peaks. It's very, very close overall. I lean slightly MJ because you know, he didn't have those same kinds of lapses uh, for extended periods of time. So he had possession lapses, but not like this year. I'm not going to play defense in the same way that LeBron has. Um, and at the end of the day, peak is just the most important thing, but I will say, LeBron argument to me that is very strong is 
he is now playing basketball at this level for seven, eight years longer than MJ ever did. And that's not the most important thing to me, but it is a thing. And there comes a point where it's like, geez, you know, if LeBron's still scoring 30 a game, yeah, he's not what he was in terms of defense, maybe in terms of all around winning impact, but that's just insane basketball ability for so long. So I am also at the point where I don't think you can go wrong either way. Not at all. I love looking at Michael Jordan box scores or Bulls box scores because it's yeah. always like like the really good ones. It's MJ, 45 points on 40 shots. Final score, Bulls, <laughs> 80. Pistons, 77. You're like, what was this? Like, what happened here? <laughs> That's the craziest thing, dude. Uh, 97 and 98 finals, I think he scored right around 40% of his team's points, like overall. I mean, it's or somewhere in the high 30s. It's just a ridiculous because it's like, yeah, his efficiency wasn't great, and he's only scoring in the low 30s, but his team is averaging 80 points per game. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's uh, The scoring is better than most people think because you look at someone like KD, you get 30 points per game, but his team's scoring 110. Mm-hmm. It's, not as, it's not as impactful as if it's like, hey, Michael, like we need you to, to score every point today, like, or we're going to lose. Like, I need you. Um, I don't think anyone else really had that responsibility. Yeah, and they are. Another important point, I think, is as scores equally efficient compared to their eras, which I think is the only way you can judge it. I always use true shooting percentage versus league average. I think LeBron is plus 4.5. Bulls MJ is plus 4.4. So it's like it's a wash there. And I think people might look at the raw numbers and say, oh, well, LeBron is a bit of an advantage. It's like, yeah, because the league is better offensively. Uh, overall, the league was really good offensively in the late 80s, but once you get into like the late 90s and most of Jordan's career, it was not as good as it is right now, which is like the best offense has ever been. Who do you guys think has the better, bigger peak basketball moment between the two? Because I'd argue that LeBron's 2016, LeBron. like the, the 3-1 comeback is maybe the biggest basketball moment ever. I would lean LeBron, but I think that part of that is, I mean, there's an interesting dynamic there because LeBron had to be the underdog for that to be possible. And MJ was just never the underdog. Mm -hmm. And I don't think MJ faced a team that was ever as good as the 2016 Warriors. But I also think, and I said this in one of my videos, the best MJ teams would have been favored over the 2016 Warriors at that point. I think with Steph being banged up with Bogut being injured, like that was still a great team, but it Mm -hmm. was not quite the team that we had seen during the regular season. Whereas MJ, you know, churned out a 72 and 69 win teams back to back and had multiple playoffs where he's losing three games or fewer in the entire run. Like he just had more dominant teams at his peak, but yeah, that's, that's a, that is, I would agree with you. I think that is the, moment between the two of them that like is is the most impressive individually probably the 2016 finals are awesome but it, like you said it's like to come back from 3-1 you first must be down 3-1 <laughs> um <laughs> obviously coming back uh washes away all the sins and whatnot but looking at the the 93 finals um that mm-hmm. gets pushed to six mj's 50 50% from the field, 41 points, yeah. eight and a half rebounds, six and a half assists, essentially. Um, you could you could point at that and say that's about as good as anyone ever got at basketball. And I'd be, I'd, I'd probably agree with you. Yeah. I think it's a very fair point. That's an incredible series. Okay. Uh, let's end this with Aaron, you giving us one other thing that you, one other take that you think is particularly hot in terms of, all-time player rankings. And you can go deep here if you want. It doesn't have to be just top 10. 
um, can be top 10, could also involve John Havlicek. Anything that you think is, is particularly spicy, make the pitch. The one that always comes back to me and TikTok just goes ballistic over. Um, I've been pretty adamant for a while that Hakeem isn't a top 10 player. Now, I think really okay. quickly, one second. Oh, good. Yeah. You guys didn't have, you guys, you didn't have Hakeem in the top 10 either. So you're not, I gonna, did not know. Yeah. And <laughs> um, Hakeem is awesome. He's a very fun player. I think because you look at him and you're like, holy shit, this guy can play all the defense and has all the post moves. He must be the best center ever. But on the court, practically, it didn't really come out like that. He's been, he has this amazing four-year stretch when the Rockets start getting really good, and he does become this monster two-way player. But the whole prior, the years prior to that, his scoring is pretty good. It's about like 22 points. It's pretty standard. Um, and then he ends up taking that leap. And I think a mistake people tend to make when putting him as high as like fucking three. I don't know if you could, I could swear on this mm-hmm. podcast. You can yeah. take that out. Of course. Um, I don't know. Please. <laughs> more, more. Um, <laughs> um, is they think he was always that good. He was always 30 and 15 with five steals and six blocks. But th- for the majority of his career, it's standard efficiency, 20 points per game, 22 points per game, essentially. I made a comment a while back on it's some also- video. I think it's hard in those early years too, because he is sharing PT with Ralph Sampson. So, I mean, it's like they have a dual post hub system, right? I think it would be hard for him to, I don't know if he was the only Samson's big. has gone by for after what, like 90, basically it's before then. I uh, think yeah, but yeah, he got hurt yeah. quick. They yeah. played like three years together yeah. where Sampson was himself at least. Yeah. And they squeezed um, the finals out of it. They do. Then, hey, I think the '86 run is fantastic. I mean, you're still talking. I have Hakeem like 13th. Mm-hmm. Um, that's and he's there for Ooh. a reason. Okay, um, interesting. I want to hear who you have him behind after, but continue yeah, making sure. your fundamental case. Um, and he's there for a reason. But there are seasons. I think it's this 91 or something. Where well, let me double check. Yeah, 91 was a down year. He only played 56 games. Um, or 92. He plays basically every game, and they're okay. They're an okay team. They win forty-two games, mm-hmm. and like they're they do fire their coach halfway through. But it's just Hakeem and basically the guys he would eventually win the title with, and they're a mad team. And so eventually he kind of figures it out, and they take that that high rise. But it wasn't always like that, was it? It wasn't just Hakeem and nobody, and he's dragging no one because he had Samson, and then. He's not good enough to, to take a team to the finals on his own for a good five-year stretch in between that and when he finally does in 94 and 95. And you know what, damn it, Clyde Drexler was one of the 10 best players in the league in 95. He was still really good, and people say he was trash. They say, like, they talk like he wasn't even there. That trade is is huge. That team isn't good without him, essentially. Well, another caveat maybe you could throw into Hakeem's case, too, is the two titles that he gets are when MJ is, you know, off doing his own thing. And I mean, I think that's another aspect of it is if MJ doesn't go to Keem ever get his ring, because that's really what makes his case. Now I do want to, mm-hmm. um, I mean, if he doesn't have those, like nobody has Hakeem. I- I'm sorry, Aaron, have you actually seen that? Has someone had Hakeem three? Usually I think the highest tends to be about four. About that's, four. Lu- that's actually ludicrous. That's I love insane. Hakeem. Yeah. For a while, I had Hakeem as my second best center of all time behind Kareem. I think he's is he five now for me behind... Bill Wilt, Shaq, 
Um, and Karimi, I think he's five now for me, just outside of the top 10. But for a while, I was a, I don't know, I was a big proponent of that case of Hakeem's criminally underrated. Um, do you think he's the greatest defensive? Oh, would you guys both have Bill above Hakeem as defensive big men? Yeah. Yeah. I honestly really don't think it's particularly close. And I think people are infatuated with the defensive playmaking numbers from Akeem, which are completely unrivaled in the recorded uh, history. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if we had Bill and Wilt's block numbers, everybody from that era says, yeah, they block eight to 10 shots a game. So I think Akeem's, you know, four plus in his peak years would start to look a little bit more puny. But also it's a different era, obviously. Like it was... uh, easier to block shots when everything was more congested. so there's a ton of factors, but I think it's certainly Russell when you look at the, the team impact. So Aaron, do you think he's like, is your official take is the game's a little overrated or uh, what do what do you think? Yeah, I, I'd say so just in yes and no. I think you put him as like a, a fringe top 10 guy, like you're totally good, but he is one him. And I think KG and David Robinson, for some reason defensive players tend to just get blown up into the top 10. I don't, yeah, I don't know that Kate. Yeah. I don't know that KG, bro. I also, Um, well, top 10. Okay. I will agree with you there. I think that that's excessive. mm. Um, but I do think, I mean, uh, KG's all around impact on winning as like, yes, he has something of a limitation in that he wasn't ever a great scorer, but he was a legitimate lead scorer and, you know, a defensive wrecking ball. One of the, certainly 10 best defenders we've ever seen, yeah. maybe five, like unbelievable versatility and a lead playmaking engine um, and a versatile score too. And like, and, I mean, and just the craziest son of a bitch to ever step foot that, on an NBA but, court. But literally, I think one of the great stats for KG is he is in the era that we have on off data, you know, which measures how a team performs with a guy on the court versus off it, which is since 1997. So obviously you think of all the great players who've come through, they're all the top 10 players. KG has the single best number of all time, uh, which I think is, you know, one of many testaments to his all around impact on winning. So if you put him in the top 10, I would probably push back, but I, again, I need top to 20. Look at this. I think he's, he's, a, to, he's a top 20 player. Leave I, he, it there, he, about as high as 15 is good. Yeah. I think he might be even 15 for me. Um, so, Okay, 13 is an interesting number for Akeem. I can see Akeem down to 12. That's where I have him. Who do you have? Do you have KD above him? Who was the last person? Oh, man, Dr. J. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Um, It's something I kind of did on a, like, sometimes you make make a point on a make a video and you're like, I actually should, like, research this and defend it. And then you're like, hey, I actually think I was right about that. Um, (laughs) And that kind of came with, with Dr. J, um, because like I said, with Hakeem making a finals and then it's just basically nothing until he figures it out and, and gets there, Dr. J wins. And, and the ABA is always tricky. By the time yeah. he, they, uh, Dr. J is winning in the ABA, it, it's close to as good as the NBA. It's probably like 60-40. Um, he wins a ring there. He wins another ring there. And then the numbers fall off a cliff. But with those numbers falling off, you really don't see any lapse in effectiveness. Because in 77, he takes them back to the finals. And then they mm-hmm. make it again in 80. And then they make it again in 82. And it's just like, hey, if Dr. J's in your team, you're one of the five best teams in the league. I'll take you to the finals. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, when Moses shows up, they win a ring. And I always kind of resent Moses for that because then you get to a point where people say, oh, he needed Moses. They, if they had like 
10 extra points, they win a few rings. He won an MVP the year before Moses won his two, bro. Yeah, I mean, Dr. J does have this super interesting legacy in that he was... Is he going? The the second best player alive for a time in which he was not the in the best league in the world. Uh, and, you know, it's very strange how you sort of calibrate that and the guy's all-time standing. Then the one time that he does get an NBA ring, it is as the second guy still, you know certainly a top 10 player in the world, probably about top five player in the world, right around that five range. Um, but he is the second guy nonetheless. But I mean, yeah, Dr. J is obviously um, absolutely incredible all time. I think the interesting thing with Akeem, because um, I do have him outside my top 10, but I will say I thought long and hard. And I think he makes an argument up to probably, probably eight for me. Um, because it is very rare in the history of the game that we have seen as dominant a defensive force with that kind of peak scoring ability as well. Uh, and the 94 95 titles are remarkable. I mean, his averages across those two runs are 31 and 11 with three and a half blocks per game on pretty darn good scoring efficiency. And the 94 team is just not, a, you know, a conventional title caliber roster. And that's the other thing you look at his team success and like, yeah, it's middling. And um, he certainly doesn't have the floor raising ability of like a LeBron, right. Who could drag kind of whatever team to 50 wins, but they also really didn't have a lot of rosters that you look at and think, yeah, I could really expect them to contend. So I do think that's part of what works against him in a way, just in terms of how we view him that hey, it's not an invalid criticism, but it's like, yeah, he didn't have the caliber of talent around him for most of his career that most of the all-time players have. That being said, I do think, you know, he is not one of the great, like if you're looking at top 10 of all time, he's not as complete an offensive player as some of the guys we've ever seen. He did not score with great efficiency for the most part throughout his career. He's only about two points above league average through shooting. Uh, he was not like a playmaking engine. So although it's beautiful, the skill is unbelievable, the footwork, all that. I do think that that works against him a bit. So I think I'd probably have him 11. I said I had Kobe 11. I think I might have Akeem above him, um, but it's, it's close to me, but that kind of, you know, lead offense and just otherworldly defensive ability is really pretty incredible. And that peak is, is otherworldly. Um, but you make a good point. I mean, he was not quite at that level forever. So. And not to rain on the, on the, the 94 and 90, um, 95 rings, but again, like slightly overrated just a okay. little bit. They're tell still, me, cra- they're why. still crazy. They're still crazy. It, it kind of comes down to people see Hakeem playing great teams during those runs, but they are playing horrible centers. And he does destroy David Robinson, which is really cool. Andy, I mean, Andy sunned Shaq in the finals. I know that's baby Shaq, but he completely sunned him in the I, finals. I, I disagree. I, I would disagree. I think it was Shaq. I mean, Shaq gives it to him um, in, those, in those finals with, I think it's like, 27, 12, and 6 on 60% shooting. And that greatest defensive player ever, however people call Hakeem, isn't is getting I mean, I don't mean what he was giving. I don't even mean what he was giving Hakeem offensively. I mean what Hakeem was doing to him on the other end, dude. Like, like yeah, Shaq got his. Shaq averaged 28, 13, and 6. But I mean, offensively, uh, Shaq had nothing for Hakeem. Didn't Hakeem also lead? Hakeem played poorly in the 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 ninety in the 95 finals. Cracker, what are you talking about? <laughs> One of the most remarkable things is that across his two finals appearances, Akeem led every single game in scoring for both teams. Ten times he was the outright leader. One time he was tied. He won a title with, I believe, Otis Thorpe was the second leading scorer on that first team. 
Like, it's just pretty unfathomable uh, when you're looking at a guy carrying the team around him. And, you know, that just doesn't that doesn't single handedly make a resume. But I don't know. I do think those rings are pretty remarkable. The 95 finals. Hakeem is, is 33, 11, five and a half, but the, the 48% shooting is, is cool. It's, it's not as great as Shaq giving 28, 13, six more blocks on, on essentially six. I just, dis- I just disagree, bro. I get it. But, but I mean, Clyde Drexler is, is he's 21 and nine and seven and Robert Ory is 18 and 10 and four and Mario Ellie is 16 and four and three and Sam Cassell plays really well. I think, and with 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 uh, the magic, Penny Hardaway plays really well, but and Horace Grant's whatever. Brian Shaw shoots forty two percent. Nick Anderson shoots thirty six percent. Dennis Scott plays like shit. He plays thirty one percent, and that's really where the sweep comes from. I think on an even on an even playing field, where one supporting cast doesn't go ballistic, that 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 series is a seven game series. Shaq and Hakeem were just as good as each other and the difference came in how the Rockets supporting cast I'm just gonna push back I just actually just disagree I don't think that Shaq was on Hakeem's level at this point I mean you can look at the numbers and like I think Shaq would really come to he's 22 and I don't want to discredit what Shaq did in his finals and how good he was but I mean Hakeem's the best player on the planet at this point in the game and I don't think Shaq's very far behind like I don't want to just disrespect Shaq and what he did in this series but I just disagree. I think Akeem was unequivocally the best player on the planet at this point in, in basketball. Um, yeah, I mean, it's okay. It's close. It's close. It's close. I, I just I, think I, Shaq, I, I, and maybe, maybe I'm just saying that because Shaq had so much more room to grow, you know I mean? In five seasons, we see what he becomes, but I just think, I don't know. I think Akeem was the best player on the planet at this point in the NBA. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, there's a defensive gap at this point, and this is peak scoring Akeem doing so, you know, pretty darn efficiently. Like I think that there is still a, a gap there as well. And that's not to say that Shaq was not incredible and a top five player in the world and all of those things. And I think that, you know, you're right. Could have been a more competitive series if we're looking at equal supporting cast contributions, but I would still take 1995 Akeem over 1995 Shaq. Definitely. But all and right, I wanna, and I don't want to downplay. I don't think Orlando. Don't get me wrong. I think that Houston's supporting cast is way better. But, but hey, man, Penny, well, Horace Grant, like they're not slouches here, bro. Nick Anderson, Dennis Scott, they're good role players. Yeah, they're well, good, I, but they played poorly. I mean, Nick Anderson and Dennis Scott had like the worst <laughs> series in their lives. But yeah, Nick that, Anderson disappeared after this. <laughs> that's I that's, think Hakeem winning that finals is is legit. But the sweep tends to get people. Okay. Like, oh, he destroyed him. But like, no, it's actually was really close. And they were about as good as each other. Um, Yeah. I also think, though, if anybody's, you know, determining somebody's legacy, if like a a pillar point is whether or not they swept somebody or won in a more competitive series, it's like he played for 20 years. You know, I think that we have a little bit more than that to go off of than, you know, whether it was a four or six game series. Um Shaq oh. did get swept a lot, though. Just kind of, I don't know why. He did, I, I want to do the numbers on how many sweeps for the top 10 guys. He just gets swept all the time. It's kind of strange. All right, let me see if I can speed uh, run it. Rookie year, swept. Second year, swept. Third year, swept. Or not his rookie year, sorry. His first playoff run swept. That's interesting, actually. His first three playoff runs, he was swept. All right. Yeah, that is that's, That actually is wild. 
Any closing thoughts? This has been fun. Um, yeah, I had a great time. Aaron, you fired me up when you brought up a Virginia Squires Dr. J. That got me going today. <laughs> Love it. I mean, yeah. I, Dr. J is, is always underrated. I feel like uh, people don't appreciate him, but he was dominant in both leagues and cool stuff. He was. And I don't know, you know, definitely would have been the guy who most aggressively pushed Kareem for best player in the world title, best player in the NBA title in the late um, or more in the early mid seventies. Cause then he can't, he comes over in 76. Um, there's yeah. the real Kareem slander. If you want to ever, ever want to knock him down a few picks, it's like, well, second best player of the 70s wasn't in the league. Time. <laughs> Damn. Just and, saying. <laughs> and, and, and Kareem still ended the decade with uh, one ring. Damn. Yeah. I've seen people, I've seen people push for magic over Kareem. And I'm like, I'm kind of in, I'm not like sold on it, but I'm kind of into it. Like, I just think it's cool. I think it's, it's a fun idea. Yeah. I think if you're looking uh, purely at the Lakers years, definitely magic over Kareem, but then or their years together, but then Kareem also has almost a decade before that as the best player on the planet, you know, and then it's like, all right, well, I think it's, it's tough to argue, but I also think like the last two Kareem rings people can overrate a bit, um, you know, 87 and 88, he's the third and fourth best players on those teams pretty much. So he's it's 6, like 6,000 years old. He's grabbing 6,000 years old. It's incredible that he's still that good, but <laughs> yeah, he's, yeah, he's still playing. Yeah, I think the, the thing for me between Magic and Kareem is just Magic was Magic's the weakest defender probably in the top 10. Uh, you know, you could argue Steph over the course of his career. Um, I think those two are pretty clearly, but they also, you know, in my opinion, make arguments. I think Magic has a strong argument for the best offensive player ever. Um, and I think Steph has an argument for the best offensive player ever. So they're making up for it, obviously. But I think it's tough to argue Magic over Kareem in totality. All right. This was fantastic. Guys, go ahead again. Check out Aaron on TikTok at Possible Chairs. Obviously, he has shown his wisdom uh, and passion, and we've had a ton of fun. Any any other handles, anything else you want to plug? That is all I got. Possible Chairs on TikTok. It's the only place you can find me. Beautiful. All right. So find him there. Uh, You guys know where you can find us. Obviously, the podcast is on all platforms. You can check us out on TikTok at NerdSesh. Uh, That is where we are coming out with, you know, regular trivia content. Uh, doing lots of player breakdown stuff. Uh, recently done a couple on Ben Simmons, a little bit of bowl bowl. So trying to do a lot there. Go ahead and check all that out. Um, you guys can check out SoBet. And that is uh, the premium subscription betting service where you get uh, exclusive picks from us and a ton of other uh, sports betting influencers. So you can go ahead and check that out at uh, the link tree in our bio across all our social channels. Uh, and with that, as always, I've been Carson Braber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! 
And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.